This morning I want to talk about what we find here in what I sometimes call the seven ones of Ephesians 4. Paul here lists seven things and calls them out by ones. And one of those things he calls out is baptism. He says in this passage here there is one baptism. So this morning I want to talk about that idea. And I will say from, from the onset here, this is kind of a piggyback from last week's lesson. We talked about some of the very things that we're going to talk about uh, last week today, but I want to briefly recap that and then go into a little bit more uh, about this idea of baptism and, and what it means to us and, and more importantly what Scripture has to say about it. So Paul here he talks about, and in the context here, he's talking about being united He's, he's telling the Ephesian brethren here that you need to be united, and you need to especially be united on these seven points here about one body, that is uh, the church itself, one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father. So as we focus in on that one baptism, well, what does that mean? What, what do we mean by one baptism? Why does Paul say that there is one baptism because in the New Testament, we actually read about more than one baptism. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But let's talk about baptism in the New Testament. First of all, let's understand a little bit about some definitions here. The word baptizo is the Greek word that is translate, uh, translated as baptize, and that's the verb form of the word. Um, from the Greek, what it means here is to dip repeatedly, to immerse or to submerge. Uh, also meaning to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water, to wash oneself or to bathe. It also means to overwhelm. And so in, in reading those definitions, keep those in, the, in your mind as we go through and, and, and read about baptism. Remember, this is a word um, that has a, a definition. And the definition is, is where we really need to understand what it means. It simply means to immerse, to overwhelm. It also means a washing and a cleansing is, is, is involved in that as well, but uh, it, if you understand about immersion, submerge, overwhelm, it will kind of open up the idea of when the word is used, you need to look at the context and understand it the best that we can. So in the New Testament, really, there are three baptisms that are spoken of, and I'm not talking about individual baptisms, I'm talking about baptisms as, as, as a, 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 a word here. Uh, not the events themselves, but the word baptism. First, we talk about the baptism of John. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, it says there that John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is where we first read about baptism, the New Testament in the context of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent as a precursor, as a forerunner for Jesus. Uh, John himself says that I baptize with water, but there is someone coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is a pre-runner, a precursor, forerunner for the Lord himself, but he was preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. So understand this, that John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. It was there to get people ready for the Lord's arrival, and it was to get them ready for what would follow that after Jesus ascended into heaven, that there would be another baptism, that would be the Lord's baptism. 
This is radical in the idea of forgiveness of sins by immersion in water rather than, under the law of Moses, forgiveness of sins by the shedding of the bloods of, of animals, of bulls and goats. So you can see why uh, in God's wisdom and his grace, he, he ushered this in and got the people ready for the transition of uh, the means of forgiveness from animal sacrifice into immersion in water. There's another baptism that we read of, and that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this, uh, this is where you're uh, keeping in mind what the word baptism means, submerge, overwhelm, immerse, helps us to understand about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And all these things are connected and how they flow together. So Jesus is saying, John baptized with water, but you're going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know that that did happen on the day of Pentecost as they were gathered together there in Jerusalem. It says there that as they were gathered, that the apostles were gathered together, and that the, a sound filled the room like a rushing wind. So can you understand that they were immersed in that sound, in the rushing wind as they were gathered there together? They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. They were immersed with the Holy Spirit. So this is important to understand that this is not a baptism for the remission of sins or a baptism in water. This was a baptism and an immersion of the apostles in the Holy Spirit. And this was promised to them. Jesus said that I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth. And this is that events, those events taking place. So that's another baptism that we read of in the New Testament. And then we read of this baptism, and that is the baptism in the name of the Lord. Acts chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Paul said, listen to the language, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the context there, Paul's gone to Ephesus, and he's met some disciples there, and he asked them that they received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. They said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And, Jesus, and Paul says, well, what, when were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized with the baptism of John. And that's when Paul says, John baptized with water, the, the, repentance of, the baptism of repentance, telling them to believe that it was coming after him, that is Jesus. And they heard that. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you see how this, how this kind of flows. The Lord's baptism, that is the, the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, came after, uh, succeed, succeeded the baptism of John. It replaced the baptism of John. The baptism of John had its place. After that comes the baptism of, uh, of the Lord. And so John's baptism is then replaced with the Lord's baptism. So when Paul talks about one baptism, when he says there in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, one body, one spirit, one baptism, Paul is talking about baptism in the name of the Lord because that is uh, the, the baptism that has seceded the baptism of John. And in between that, we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that was a special baptism. That was an immersion in the Holy Spirit by the apostles. The baptism of John was for the remission of sins, and so is the baptism of the Lord. But the Lord's baptism succeeded John's baptism and is now 
the one baptism that Paul talks about here in Ephesians 4. He also says this way in 1 Corinthians 12, and I've, I've bolded here to kind of so you can see the parallels between these two passages. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul says, for, we, uh, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are made to drink of one Spirit. So understanding this, understanding that there is one baptism that's being spoken of here. When Paul talks about the one baptism, he's talking about baptized in, name, in the name of the Lord. That's the baptism that Paul is talking about. That's the baptism that is spoken of on, in Acts chapter 2, which we'll look at here in just a moment. That is the baptism in the name of the Lord. That is the baptism that puts us in touch with the blood of Christ. That is the baptism that God recognizes, and he adds us to those who have already been baptized, to that number. We're going to talk about that, too, as we go. So, let's talk about it in this way. Who's involved in a baptism? This is important for us to understand. We can probably uh, get the first one right, right? It's pretty easy to get that one right. Who's involved in a baptized? Well, the one being baptized. That's, that's number one. The person that's involved in the baptism is very important in understanding how all this flows together. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter here, as he's standing up there on the day of Pentecost, and the, the, uh, has accused his Jewish brethren of putting to death the Son of God, they realize what they have done, and they ask what they, can they do in response to that. What can they do uh, to be cleansed of this terrible sin that they've committed? And, Jesus, and Peter says to them, repent, and let each of you be baptized. So we see there that, that, that qualifying that, now you could say, a you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The, the you here in our, in our English can refer to a group of people. But Peter qualifies that by saying each of you. So each individual of them, and on that day about 3,000 souls, as we'll read here in a moment, were baptized. Right? So the one being baptized is involved in a baptism. Who else is involved in a baptism? Well, the Lord is involved in the baptism. And uh, further on in Acts here, as, as this unfolds here in chapter 2, um, in verse 40, uh, it says, And with many other words he solemnly testified, that, P, that is Peter, uh, and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. In verse 41 it says, So then those who had received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, we understand that Peter is exhorting them, he's encouraging them, and they have received the word, and each of them, these, each one of these 3,000 souls were baptized. Down in verse 47, in Acts chapter 2, at the end of that verse, it says, And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, um, Devin can attest to the fact that I did a deep dive on that one little sentence there at the end of verse 47 to understand what that means because um, that word number there gets rendered 
from the Greek word autos. I won't go into all that, but I actually did talk to some Greek scholars about this and tried to fully understand what this, what this meant. And the best way I can describe this to you is the Lord was adding to the number, to those who were being saved, those who were being saved, if you can follow along with that. So God is adding to the number, those 3,000 souls that had already been saved, he was adding to them those who were being saved day by day. Does that make sense to us? So the word there, number, is, is, a, is a better way to describe it. Some translations, and if you're following along and you're looking in your Bibles, some translations render that word church. The Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. I will submit to you this, and I'm no Greek scholar, but I know a little bit. And the word church there comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a calling out, and, uh, out, of, a, out of your homes into a public meeting, into a public, sp- and, uh, a public space to a public meeting. The word ecclesia does not appear in this passage. So a better rendition of that is something to, along these lines, adding to their number those who were being saved. So there's each individual is being baptized, and then there's the Lord. The one goes down into the water. The Lord adds them to that to the the number of those who have already done that before them. doesn't say added to the church. Some, again, some render it that way. But a better rendering is he's adding those who are being saved to the number of those who have already been saved. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, helps us to, to further our understanding a little bit about this coming in contact with the water. Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, let me just submit to you that this is a deep... We talked about this in our Bible class this morning. Paul's writing to these Romans... They have a, a, a deep understanding of Scripture and what they've been taught so far. So he's taking it upon himself to, to, to teach them a little bit more, to teach them a little bit more depth about the baptism. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, what did Peter say? Repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you will see the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't go into all of this, but they had enough of understanding and what Peter goes on to testify about him, himself being a witness to the things that he's witnessed that they knew that they had to be baptized if they wanted to be forgiven of their sins. Later, as, as the church matures and as others mature, Paul introduces this kind of idea, and it helps us to understand this is how we come in contact with the blood of Christ. This is how we come in contact with his, with his death and burial. We go down into the waters, similar to the way Jesus was put into the ground, into the earth. As Jesus was resurrected, so are we resurrected from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. That is the connection that we have with Jesus and what he did for us. But understand this, that it's the one being baptized, coming in contact with the blood of Christ, the Lord. That's who's involved in a baptism. Now, I will say this. There's one other that's involved in this, and that would be the baptizer. In all of this, the, the one being baptized is in a passive role. They are being put under the water. We don't read about people baptizing themselves. 
we read about people being put underwater, to be, to be buried. They are uh, submissive in this act, both physically and spiritually. So there is the baptizer, and I will tell you that it mostly to be said about this baptizer is that he's incidental. The two that are most important are the one being baptized and the Lord. The baptizer is quite incidental. And I will put that to you as, do you read any here in here about qualifications of a baptizer? And let me further make this point by reading what Paul says to the Corinthian brethren. In Corinth, they, one of the problems they were having was there, there were divisions among them. And, and what he's addressing here is some were saying, well, I, I was baptized by Peter, that's Cephas, or I was baptized by Apollos, or I was baptized by Paul. And they were quarreling, they were bickering amongst themselves. And Paul says this, I, that, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I of Paulus, I of Cephas, or I of Christ. And he asks it this brilliantly in the way that he addresses this. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We just went through a whole exercise. Baptized in the name of the Lord. Not baptized in the name of Paul. Not baptized in the name of Cephas or Apollos. These are good men. We're not baptized in their name. Has Christ been divided? Can I say, well, I was baptized over here, but I was baptized over... Christ, was Christ been divided? Or was he, are we baptized one, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4? One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Christ hasn't been divided. Paul wasn't crucified. And we're not baptized in the name of Paul. Paul goes on to say in this passage which I love this and how this, that he addresses this. He says that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't, oh, let me just read it here. Um, verse 14, picking up, says, I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say they were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So, in all of that, Paul is pointing out the idea here that who puts you under the water is, is somewhat incidental. Now, a lot of times it's the preacher, maybe an elder, something like that, but it does not have to be. We don't have qualifications for a baptizer. What's more important is the first two there. The one being baptized, and, and the reasons why, and the, under the auspices in which they're being baptized, and the Lord. The Lord adding to the number those who are being saved. Baptizer is somewhat incidental. We're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go. So, having said that, who's not involved in a baptism? Well, let me answer that question very easily. Everyone else. Nobody else is involved. Baptism is between the one being baptized and the Lord. And let's look at a couple of scriptures to point this out. 1 Peter 3, verse 21, a familiar passage to us. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but what? An appeal to whom? 
to God? Is it an appeal to the church universal that all the saints, both living and dead, is it, am I being baptized to appeal to them? Am I being baptized to appeal to uh, the local church, the Church of Christ here in Cortez? Is my baptism for, for that? Or maybe it's for the eldership, or maybe it's for the preacher, or maybe it's for mom and dad, or grandma and grandpa, or son and daughter. No. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Everyone else is not involved. The one being baptized, the Lord his God. That's who's involved. So, as such, we cannot sit in judgment of each other's baptism. If a person has heard the, and heard the gospel and believed it, and repented of their sins, and confessed Jesus as the Son of God, and been immersed in water, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are we to doubt the validity of their salvation? The New Testament's clear about the auspices under which we are to be uh, baptized, and I just lined them out for you. If that has taken place, who are we to stand in their way? Who are we to doubt their baptism? One point about this, and I can't take credit for this, my beautiful bride made this point in our discussions at home about this. If we're doubting the validity of someone's baptism, aren't we calling into question the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Is, our blood, is his blood not powerful enough to save each and every one of us? Do we have to question someone's baptism? And, and, and so what are we doing? We're calling into account the precious blood of our Lord. You know, the Hebrew writer talks about trampling underfoot the precious blood of, of Jesus Christ when we, when we sin. Aren't we calling that into question if we're doubting someone's baptism? If they've been, they've heard and believed and, and repented and confessed and been immersed in water, isn't Jesus' blood strong enough, powerful enough to forgive them of their sins, to wash them of their sins? There is a saying out there, perhaps you've heard this. You can't be taught wrong and be baptized right. You may have heard that somewhere along the way. Sounds pretty catchy. Sounds like, well, maybe there's some, some truth to that. Let me, let me warn you about this. First of all, this is teaching of men, the words of men. This is not, we don't find this in Scripture. So we have to be very, very careful about these kind of idioms and these kind of proverbial sayings when they're used like this because they can sound authoritative and they can sound powerful, but we have to be very careful about what they are trying to convey to us. Let me ask you this. You can't be taught, taught wrong and baptized right. Has every church since, since the day of Pentecost, every church, have they gotten everything right? Or have churches stumbled and fallen and been off and been corrected or dissolved or split? There's a lot of wrong teaching out there in the world, isn't there? Does that invalidate everyone's baptism because they might have been attending a church that was off on something? Why am I being held responsible for a church that's off on doctrine somewhere? No, because it goes back to who is the baptism before us between the one being baptized and the Lord. 
So we got to be very careful about using such language as this, that we can't be taught wrong and baptized right. So let's look at what the Hebrew writer says about uh, somewhere along this lines of subject. You'll see what we mean here in a minute. He's admonishing them, um, the Hebrews there, because he says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So notice what he's telling, what he's uh, condemning them for is that they have, have, have moved backwards. Instead of progressing and being teachers at this point, they need someone else to teach them the elementary oracles, uh, principles of the oracles of God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you need someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles. You have come to need milk and solid food, and by the way, you need to be baptized again. Does it say that? In fact, the word baptism does not appear in the book of Hebrews. Why? Because the Hebrew writer is writing to brethren. Earlier there in chapter 3 and verse 12, he refers to them as brethren. So those who he's speaking to have heard the gospel. They believed it. They repented of their sins. They confessed Jesus Christ as, as the Son of God, and they were immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now they have gone backwards. They need to go back and learn the elementary things, but notice what the Hebrew writer does not tell them that they need to do. He does not tell them they need to be baptized again. Because they don't need to be. Because the blood of Christ has washed them of their sins. Now this doesn't mean that they are innocent until the day they die. 1 John 1 and verse 9 tells us if we, are, uh, if we for, uh, confess our sins, he is righteous and faithful to forgive us and wash us from our iniquities. So as, as a baptized child of God, if I sin and I pray and I repent of those sins and ask God for forgiveness, that sin is wiped away too. But I don't have to go back through the waters of baptism because I've been baptized. The power of Jesus' uh, crucifixion, his sacrifice, washes me again. That's powerful. When we begin to doubt that, we call into question someone's baptism, we run a very dangerous risk here of being, uh, as someone uh, in, uh, that John was addressing in 3 John, a Diotrephes. In 3 John, he calls out this man Diotrephes. In verse 9, he says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. We need to be very careful about sitting in judgment of each other's baptism. We don't have the authority. We don't have the right. We don't have the example of putting people out of the church because we call into question their baptism. We need to be very careful about those kinds of idioms that are floating around out there. Might sound good, might sound authoritative, but they're not. Let's understand this. Each of us is responsible 
for ourselves. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2 and verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, it's up to us as individuals. It was me as an individual who went down in those waters of baptism and, and communed with our Lord, so to speak, came in contact with that. But, but more importantly, what I, what I did was I, I rendered obedience to God. It was, it was me and it was him. And I am going to be held accountable for my actions. If I come into uh, a church and I express the, the, um, the, 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 my baptism and, and I, I was immersed in water for the remission of my sins, that ought to be enough. And if somehow I'm lying about that or I'm not being truthful about that, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the church. It affects me. I'm the one that's going to have to stand in front of God and give an account for that. Each one of us is going to give an account for the lives that we have lived. Paul writes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, either good or bad. So it's up to me. If I'm hiding something or lying about my salvation, it doesn't affect, the church is not responsible for that. You've told us what you, uh, under the auspices in which you have been baptized and, and the life that you have led to a certain point, and we ought to accept that. And if it, come, if it comes up that, that you've been lying or something that's happened, well, you can deal with that as that comes up. Or if you hide it your whole life and you stand in the, in the judge, before the judgment seat of Christ and you've lied about that, then you're going to have to answer for that. Church is not going to be held responsible for that. That's you. The other side of, the, of that is this. While we shouldn't be interrogated and, um, and uh, a, doc, a dossier uh, created against us about our, our baptism and our subsequent uh, service to God, we shouldn't be offended when we're asked about it either. In, in fact, it should be the opposite. We should be joyous. We should be happy to give an account for, for the things that we have done. Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter 3, beginning verse 13. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Someone asks you about your baptism, here it is. Let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about how I was a sinner. I went down in the waters of baptism. I was washed of my sins. I came up out of those waters to walk in newness of life. Oh, and guess what? I made some mistakes along the way. I fell down. I fell hard. But I prayed. I asked for forgiveness. I repented of my sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive me of those sins. That's probably everyone's story sitting in this room who have put on Jesus Christ through baptism. So don't be ashamed of it. So, what does baptism mean? And I don't mean, we're not going to go back over the, the Greek and all that. I mean, what does it mean to us as Christians? What does it mean to the, the world? Well, 
it's a beginning of a journey. It's not the end. Baptism puts you in that, uh, in that number. God adds you to that number. He's the one that does the adding. If you have heard and believed and repented and confessed and been baptized, God adds you to that number. And your journey begins as a child of God. In what we deem the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus tells his apostles, he tells them to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you um, even to the end of the age. You know, think about the, the beginning of this and, and of a journey. Remember, we've been studying recently uh, the life of Jesus, and we've been noting and, and seeing his disciples that are, that are going along with him. And a, a disciple is a learner. He's a pupil. Uh, he's, he's one who is sitting and, and, and learning from a teacher. In this case, Jesus being the teacher, his disciples being those who are following after him. And as a disciple, did they have all the answers right away when they just started following after Jesus? No, they didn't. We see them asking questions along the way. And we've noted that as the disciples are asking questions. Recently, we, we looked at uh, the man who was born blind, and his disciples asked him, was this man blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? And does that sound like someone who has a firm grasp of the law of Moses and, at the time and everything? Or, or the law of Christ? No, it's someone who's learning. This is, they were beginning their journey, and Jesus was teaching him as they were going. They were being taught. They didn't know everything immediately. As this applies to us, the, 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 the apostles were commissioned to go into the world and make disciples, to make pupils, to make learners of Jesus Christ, and to baptize them, and then what? Teaching them to observe all these things. Baptism is the beginning of the journey. It's not the end. We don't get, everyone knows the intricacies of the book of Romans, and then they're ready to be baptized. No. If they recognize who Jesus Christ is, they're ready to be baptized. It's the beginning of the journey. And we will make mistakes along the way. As I mentioned, you know, has every church everywhere since the day of Pentecost gotten everything right? No. Um, the young adults class is, is studying the book of Revelation. God bless them. It's a wonderful study. It's deep. But how does, how does uh, John start that letter? He starts that letter by, by re recording the messages to those seven churches in Asia that Jesus has for him to record. I think there's one of those churches that he doesn't have something negative to say. The rest of them, he has something, including the church at Ephesus. Think about, in, even in our talking right now, we've talked, we've, we've talked about Ephesus and Here's a church, and, and oh, they got everything figured out right. No, they don't. The first message is to them. He says in, in Revelation 2 and verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So here's a church that we read about in Scripture, and they have fallen. They have left their first love, and Jesus is saying, you need to repent, or I'm going to come and take your lampstand. 
And every one of you needs to be rebaptized. Didn't say that anywhere in there, does it? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is powerful enough to save them from their sins, even if they have fallen, even if they've made mistakes along the way, as we all have, we're going to make mistakes along the way. Maybe we might fall completely away from the faith, stop attending services, stop returning phone calls from, brother, from brethren. Maybe that's the point we get to. Or maybe after we've responded and been baptized, we have um, been taught error. Maybe for a very long period of time. But maybe somewhere along the way we found out, you know what? This is the truth. This is the truth more accurately. And I think about Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 as they heard this, this man, Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures. And he was preaching and he was teaching, but he, was only, he only knew about John's baptism. So Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. That man was Apollos. Does that name ring a bell? Remember we were reading there in 1 Corinthians verse 1, I am of Cephas, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Apollos went on to go to Corinth and to preach and teach the gospel. And he was uh, corrected by these two brethren, this brother and sister. And he was taught the way of God more accurately and he changed what he was teaching and preaching. He was, he was in error. But you know what? He learned something else. He learned the truth. And he made the correction. And this also brings into mind the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember the man had two sons and, and one of them asked for his inheritance and he went off and he blew it and he just spent all the money and he was, got such a low place that he was uh, uh, feeding with the hogs, right? He, he was just, just grateful to have that amount of food. What did he do? He didn't wallow. He went back to his father. And he asked for forgiveness from his father. And what did his father do? He accepted him back. He was joyful. He was glad that he had returned. He was glad that he repented and come back to him. Now his brother was jealous. His brother said, why, why are you doing this for him? He's been out there. He squandered his living. It was the father's joy to accept him back. We're going to make mistakes along the way. We're going to fall down. We're going to be taught wrong things. Doesn't mean we have to be rebaptized. If I go into another church, and over in Jacksonville maybe, and I want to be a member of that church, and do I have to be baptized into that church? I've been baptized. Maybe I've fallen away, and it's been years since I've been at, at church services, and I want to be restored, and I've, I've, I'm repent of the things that I've done. I need to be rebaptized? No. If I've been baptized under the auspices of which we've spoken about, I don't have to be rebaptized. If we do that, then there's more than one baptism. If Paul speaks of one baptism, then we need to adhere to that. I want to leave you with this. Such great lessons that we learn in Acts chapter 10. We know the story there. This is where... Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, this devout man who was given alms and prayed to God. Uh, and God heard him. And he sends an angel to speak to him and says, God has heard your prayers. And look for this man, Peter. He's going to come to you and tell you what you must do. And 
Peter comes there. Peter has a vision, right? Remember the sheet being let down with all the animals on it, and the message is arise, killer, uh, uh, Peter, kill and eat. Representational of that everything now is available, and that representational that the gospel is available to the whole world. And Peter sees that in a vision. He doesn't understand it at first, but then he clearly does. And by the time he, he says this, he understands the message here that God is trying to show him. And the message is, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. You see, the Gentiles, the, the, the gospel came to them after it had gone to the Jews. So it was, it, even in chapter 11, as, as Peter is, is recounting this uh, to the brethren in Jerusalem, they're, they're even reticent to, to, to accept this. These Gentiles, they're available now for, uh, for salvation. And, and Peter recounts what happened there in the house of Cornelius, how as, they were, as he was preaching to them, that the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as it had done to, to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Uh, yes. And he says, who, he says there, as he's recounting this, he says in Acts chapter 11, verse 15, So as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did at us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. We need to understand that our salvation, that uh, our baptism, if it's done as prescribed in the pages of the New Testament, we are washed of our sins. We might be taught error. We might have been uh, taught something wrong. We, we might have been taught something wrong at the beginning, before we were baptized. Yet if we were believed in what the message of the gospel, and repent of our sins, and confess Jesus Christ as being the Son of God and been immersed in water, our baptism is as good as anybody else's. My baptism is as good as the, uh, as the Apostle Paul's. My baptism is as good as those 3,000 souls that were saved on the day of Pentecost. We need to be very careful about calling into judgment someone's baptism and their subsequent faith after that. If someone is... Uh, striving to serve God and doing their best under what they know and they've been baptized for the remission of their sins, that's all each of us are doing. So we need to understand that the kingdom of God is available to everyone. Not that we, not that there aren't certain um, uh, standards, qualifications, response to the gospel call that we have to meet. And those cannot be overlooked. But we cannot put obstacles in our brother's way. We cannot be a diatrophies and stand to, 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 to restrict and to throw people out of the church because we don't agree with them. We need to be accepting of people. Teach them. Teach them the truth. 
It's a lifetime of study. Look at this. The letters in the New Testament are written to Christians, not written to people outside the faith. They're written to Christians. And think about the Galatians. Paul writes to them, he says, I am, you're already given up what you have learned for a different gospel? He says later, who has bewitched you, Galatians? He's writing to brethren. All of us are going to stumble. All of us are going to fall. That's where we've got to keep teaching. We've got to keep studying. We've got to keep growing in our faith so that we know through the very best of our ability, so we can be in an Apollos. Someone pulls us aside and teaches us the way of God um, more excellently. I just made that word up. I hope this lesson has been encouraging to you. I hope that we understand uh, what, what Peter writes there, that the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. God is not throwing up roadblocks. He's not putting things in our way to prevent us from, from reaching him. He wants the opposite. He wants everybody to come to him. He has paved the way to him. Paul writes there, and, or says there in Acts chapter 17 about, um, about God and how we grope, that we are made to grope for him, though, we are, though he is not far from each one of us. God hasn't made us in, in, in such a way that we'll never reach him or thrown up roadblocks. No, he wants us to come to him. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to render obedience through the waters of baptism.